When you talk about hell, you really get some people's attention. In fact, a pastor of a large megachurch named Rob Bell is really getting people's attention. Not only people in the church, but also people outside of the church as the media have picked up on what Rob Bell is teaching and particularly about hell. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zuckerman. Pat, last time we were talking about Pastor Rob Bell, his new book, Love Wins, which seems to call the doctrine of hell or the traditional doctrine of hell into question. Before we continue where we left off, who is Rob Bell and what are his basic claims in this new book, Love Wins? Yes, Kevin, you know, Rob Bell is a leader in the emergent church movement. In 2011, he was recognized as a member of the 2011 Time 100 list. In other words, Time listed him as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And he's a leader of a large mega church there in Granville, Michigan, the Mars Hill Church, that has a membership of 8,000 to 11,000 people. And not only does he have a large church attendance, but also through his cutting-edge technology, the videos he has put together and the work they do on the Internet, they are influencing the lives of thousands of Christians all over the world who are attracted to his particular message. And he's written a recent best-selling book, Love Wins, as you mentioned a little bit of his thesis there in the book. And this book I hear mentioned not only on Christian talk shows, but touted in conservative talk shows. I heard about it on the Sean Hannity show the other day. People raving about this book saying, this is the true message of the gospel. This is true Christianity. And in fact, you know, Kevin, I was at the mall the other day and I sat down with a movie producer, very intelligent guy, And he was going on how Christians don't understand the gospel. Christians don't understand the gospel. We've got the gospel wrong for centuries. And I looked over at him and I said, well, where did you get your ideas from? And guess where it was from? Love Wins, Rob Bell. And so this book has been a bestseller and it's been having quite an impact on the church, on the evangelical community and on the culture as well. Several atheist friends of mine and some other acquaintances are seeing this not as a progress being made in Christianity, but rather a demonstration that Christianity is falling apart, that it's crumbling under advanced knowledge in a technological age, that nobody can buy or swallow such absurd doctrines as the doctrine of hell. And so while people in the religious community and uh, even in the evangelical community may be thinking that, wow, I, I think I could get on board with this, non-believers are kind of laughing. And you know, Kevin, what concerns me is the hermeneutics, or what we call the art of interpretation, in many of these emergent church pastors like Rob Bell, you know, questioning the whole interpretive process and in saying, well, we really can't have the true interpretation on some of these basic doctrines. You know, and one of the things he continues to question is, how can we be so sure we have the message of the gospel? How can we be so sure we're interpreting it correctly? How can we be so sure that we've got the corner on truth? And when you start questioning the hermeneutical principles there, you can really go down a very dangerous path to the point of saying, well, then, you know, truth is relative. No one can know they have the truth. So that's a very self-contradictory position because to say that no one has the truth, well, you're making a truth statement there. And if you say no one has the truth, well, then that would include you. 
then why should we believe that truth statement? So it's a self-contradictory kind of statement. It's a false idea. It's a very dangerous kind of idea. But when you start introducing and questioning, you know, our ability to grasp or know truth, and then you go down some very dangerous roads. Yeah. I mean, anybody can question. You can question all day. But to claim that you can't arrive at any answers is one thing because often the person claims to have arrived at some answers. To question these doctrines, how do we know we have it right? How do we know we have it right? Uh, but by the way, I have it right. So Rob Bell seems to have fallen into this trap to some extent. Yes, Kevin, you know, and I'm not sure he was able to see his own self-contradiction there. But uh, you'll see throughout the, the book, he asks over 300 questions. You know, and often doesn't provide an answer, but just ask questions. Some of them are good questions. Some of them are just repetitive. Really questioning the major doctrines of biblical teaching. And this is, you know, meant to kind of set up the Christian to really, you know, shake the foundations to the point where they would be open to his new gospel message that he introduces. Pat, this seems to be part and parcel of the so-called emergent church, which Rob Bell is a part of. And that is, we don't want to supply you with any answers. Let's just dialogue. And you can sit around and, uh, you know, ask each other questions all day. Uh, When it comes time for some answers, the emergent church is almost kind of allergic to that. Or it offers its own answers subtly under the guise of just saying, let's question everything and be sure. Right. You know, that's one of the disturbing things of the emergent church movement. You know, they want to be so appealing to the culture that they don't want to really have a strong position upon the truth of biblical teaching and then defend it, you know, at the risk of offending the postmodern culture that is out there. Now, not all of the emergent churches are like that, but many of them are. And so when you do not uh, take a stand for truth, well, then, you, you know, you're presenting a false message here. And Christ said, you know, I am the way, the truth, the life. Christ claimed to be the embodiment of truth. He claimed that his teachings were indeed truth. Christ presented truth. He defended the truth. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, truth will set you free or truth will offend. And so we can't be afraid of offending the culture. We want to present Christ's truth in the most compassionate, articulate loving way possible. But you cannot always appease the culture and not be offensive because sometimes truth will offend. And, and look at Christ, look at Paul, look at Peter, some of the most loving men who understood truth and presented it in a very, very loving, strong way. And what was the result? Well, Christ was put on the cross. Paul and Peter were executed. So we can't bow down to the culture so much that we don't want to offend them and compromise the message of truth. And Pat, as you mentioned in the last show, this is a form of universalism. That is basically that hell is not forever. Another variation is that all will eventually become saved. So that's the bottom line, isn't it? Is that this book, Love Wins by Pastor Rob Bell, embraces a form of universalism. Right, Kevin. You know, Rob Bell does say that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, John 14, 6. But what he says is this, that everyone will eventually come to embrace the love of God in Jesus Christ, whether in this life or in the next, because, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails. Therefore, everyone will eventually turn to God and embrace the love of Jesus Christ. No matter what you believe now, eventually you will enter into heaven. You'll turn to God and receive his love from Jesus Christ.
Well, he states that Sheol, a Hebrew word, is used in the Old Testament to describe the resting place of the dead. Then he states that in the New Testament, Gehenna comes from the valley of Hinnon, the garbage dump of the city, and that the other words, uh, Tartarus and Hades, are not clearly defined in the New Testament. Can you uh, help us through this uh, and through these terms a little bit in these places, Pat? Yes, you know, as we mentioned last week, you know, Bell believes that when everyone dies, we go to the same place. Now, for those who have received Christ, that's heaven, and for those who have rejected Christ's love or God's love, you know, that place is hell. And God's love will continue to keep working on those in hell, and eventually they're going to turn to God, and what was once hell now becomes heaven. But essentially, we all go to the same place. It's our mindset that keeps one person in heaven and one in hell. Now, how does he defend his position? Well, one of the things he does is he does a word study on Sheol and the New Testament words for hell. And Bell states that, well, Sheol in the Old Testament is the general place where the departed spirits go. And in fact, if you read early on in the Old Testament, on several occasions, the Old Testament saints stated that they would indeed go to Sheol. So Rob Bell is partially correct in his word study there. Unfortunately, his word study is incomplete. When you do a word study, you've got to look what the Bible says throughout the entire Old and New Testament, how those words are used. And his word study is incomplete. As Revelation progresses throughout the Old Testament, we see that there are indeed different fates for the righteous and the wicked, and that there is indeed a judgment which determines the eternal destiny of individuals. For example, as Revelation progresses in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Daniel speaks of a future resurrection and eternal destiny. He says here in chapter 12, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. So there's two different destinies there for the righteous and for those who have rejected God. Daniel states there's going to be a resurrection and a judgment that determines the eternal destiny of these individuals, some resurrect to eternal life, some to everlasting contempt. Now the word everlasting there, the Hebrew word there is holam. Holam is used more than 300 times to indicate, you know, indefinite continuance into a very distant future. So there are times it is used to designate a very long period in the past or used to designate a long period of time in the future. The context determines your definition. And in this context, holam signifies an indefinite future or forever. You can make a strong case for this for several reasons. You know, the context found in verse 1 and 2 speaks of the resurrection that occurs at the end of the age. So this is speaking of the final judgment of the righteous who enter into eternity. Second, in verse 3, it is used of the righteous and it says, they will shine forever. Ever. So, Holam is used of the righteous living and shining forever. Well, we understand that to be an eternal existence. Third, it is used in a later verse, in verse 7, referring to the eternal nature of God. It says, And I heard a man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever. Well, we know that God is eternal. And so the word holam, used here in Daniel chapter 12 on several occasions, means forever or eternal here. And so when Daniel says the righteous to everlasting life 
and the wicked to everlasting contempt. He's talking about an eternal state here, not a temporary state. Here's another passage, Kevin, Isaiah 66, verse 22 through 24. Isaiah speaks of the Lord establishing his kingdom and restoring Israel, and he concludes by saying this, And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who had rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So here Isaiah refers to the state of eternal torment for those who have rebelled against the Lord. So although Sheol is used of a general resting place of departed spirits in the Old Testament, as Revelation progresses, the Old Testament mentions different eternal destinies of the righteous and the unrighteous. And this eternal state is further revealed in the New Testament. Um, What about uh, Gehenna uh, being the Valley of Hinnon? It was the garbage dump of the city. It always had uh, fire, smoke coming out of it. Seemed to be a good illustration of hell. You point to it and say, it's like that. Walk us through Gehenna, if you would, Pat. Right. In reference to the New Testament words, the most common word used of hell is Gehenna. And Bell is correct in saying that Gehenna is derived from the Valley of Hinnon, the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. But once again, Kevin, Bell's word study is incomplete. You know, Gehenna is associated with evil. And in the context of the New Testament, it symbolizes more than just the garbage dump. It served as a physical picture of the eternal state of suffering. You know, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7 through 9, Jesus states, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, the Greek word there is ionos, and the word means eternal, perpetual, to time and its duration, constant or abiding. So when referring to eternal life, it means life which is God's, and hence it is not affected by the limitations of time. And the fire described here in verse 8 is an eternal fire, as Jesus said. It's a never-ending kind of fire. In the very next verse, Christ states that it's better to enter heaven blind in one eye than thrown into the hell or Gehenna of fire. And in just the previous verse, Jesus said the fire of Gehenna, he said, was eternal. It's everlasting. So from the context, we should conclude Gehenna is an eternal state. I don't think you can build a case that it's a temporary one. Well, Pat, we all know that in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the eternal fate of those who reject him and the eternal fate of those who receive him. Isn't that a passage where Jesus indicates the eternality of hell? Yeah, that seems to be a pretty open and closed case there, Kevin, as most of us read this text. Jesus says, And these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, that seems pretty open and closed that the judgments there signify the eternal destiny of believers and unbelievers. But Bell attempts to show that in this story, the separation of the sheep and the goats, Jesus wasn't talking about an eternal punishment for unbelievers. He, He did not mean that the punishment was eternal. And that's... 
how Bell tries to reinterpret this text here. Bell writes, I own us, or I own, we know, has several meanings. One is age or period of time. Another refers to the intensity of experience. The word punishment, kalazo, is a term from horticulture. It refers to the pruning and trimming of the branches of a plant so that it can flourish. So depending on how you translate I own and kalazo, then the phrase can mean a period of pruning or a time of trimming or an intense experience of correction. So that's how Bell interprets this particular passage. It appears he is saying it's kind of like the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. You know, somewhere where unbelievers go and they receive an intense time of pruning till they are made ready to receive God's love. But once again, I find Bell's explanation very unsatisfactory since it says the goats will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal, I own us, eternal life. Same Greek words here. So here the eternal life of the believer is seen in contrast with the eternal judgment of the unbeliever. Are we saying here that the righteous will enter into a intense experience of correction? No, the righteous go to eternal life, the unbelievers to eternal punishment. So, In order for Bell to be consistent, we should interpret that the righteous will enter into an eternal state of life in the presence of God, not a temporary state of life. And this interpretation is the most consistent. Why should we understand that the word eternal for the righteous means everlasting, but just a few words over, it's taken to mean a temporary state for the unrighteous. Since the righteous have everlasting life, you know, we should take the preceding phrase that the goats enter into a state of eternal punishment. And that eternal destiny is, Paul also writes about that in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9. He says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord from the majesty of His powers. Once again, the words everlasting destruction, when used together, refers to an eternal state of punishment. You know, just look up a simple Greek word dictionary. A good one is the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament that says when you see these Greek words together, olethros ionios, destruction everlasting, refers to the destruction which is eternal or everlasting. is a destruction or state which is imposed by God forever. And we see a similar phrase, eternal judgment, used in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 2, means that in eternal sentence imposed by God. So all of these designations of punishment stand in contrast to eternal life as the inherent punishment for those who reject Christ's salvation and that they will be separated from the life of God which they rejected and they'll be separated forever. And so for as, you know, to the duration of what is designated as Ionios when it comes to punishment, Uh, It's only proper to assign it the same duration or endlessness as to the life which is given by God. So here, if you do a word study of Ionias, it's hard to say it's a temporary time of pruning or an intense experience. The majority of time when used in the uh, New Testament here, when it refers to judgment, talks about an eternal, everlasting kind of state.
You know, Pat, we could get into whether the fire in hell is the chemical combustion that we're familiar with here on Earth, or if it's a metaphor or whatever. But the bottom line is that hell is horrible, it's eternal, and that it's a separation from the only source of love and life, God himself. Right. You know, when the New Testament talks about hell, it talks about it not so much as spatially, but more relationally, you know, as there in Second Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9. As Paul writes in Second Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. And so it's speaking more relationally. Those who've rejected God in this life will not want to be with God for all eternity. And so God puts them in a place away from him. So it's speaking more relationally. And as you mentioned, you know, hell is not a place where God tortures people you know, forever and ever and ever. It's a place the Bible describes as torment. Torment comes from within, mm. you know, and it's because of the choice that they had made to reject God's love and to be shut out from his presence forever, knowing that they have rejected all that life was ever meant to be and to be left in a place where they, you know, are overcome with sin and not in the presence of life and joy and all that it was ever meant to be, you know, that's that's where the torment comes from. But it's not a place where God, you know, tortures people and and enjoys that. No, that that's not the picture of hell presented in the Bible. Yeah, Pat, and you've only scratched the surface on some passages of Scripture that show not only hell's eternal duration, but that it is a separation from God and a reality, a grim reality of which Jesus warned us. As we wrap up today, one of the big problems with the emergent church and Rob Bell and so on in their desire to appeal to the culture is that they're ashamed of the doctrine or they have a misunderstanding of the doctrine. We are in a culture that just cannot buy this idea of hell. So how should we as Christians address this with our friends who are who are not Christians or who are unbelievers? Because you hear things like, well, you don't want to scare people into becoming a Christian. But our buddy Norman Geisler says, hey, a lot of people have come to Christ because of fear of hell. They have an intuitive sense that there is justice in this universe. I don't know, uh, Pat, reflect on it a little bit. How do we approach a very thorny subject? Yeah, you know, Kevin, we want to appeal to the culture and make our message relevant to the culture, but at the same time, we don't want to compromise truth. So there is a delicate balance that the Christian has to have there in presenting this particular message. And you know, for me, Kevin, one of the best things I could do is really study my Bible and do some good theological research on the doctrine of heaven and hell and come to a clear understanding of it. Because often what the culture and unbelievers and skeptics attack is a false understanding of heaven and hell. And that's what they end up attacking. And a lot of Christians don't really understand the true nature of heaven and hell. And so they end up trying to defend a doctrine they don't really understand. And often they also have the same understanding of heaven and hell as the culture has. And they're somehow trying to defend that. You know, one of the best things we can do is have a good understanding of what the Bible teaches 
on heaven and hell. And, you know, when you actually explain it as the Bible teaches it, that hell is not a place where there's a big bonfire and God has, you know, people out there and he's burning them out there and he's laughing, you know, and enjoying seeing them get tortured out there. No, it's not a place of torture. It's a place of torment. It's a place where God honors your choice and you're separated from him forever. You know, that begins to make sense to unbelievers, you know. And when you look at them and say, if you don't want to be with God now, he's not going to force you to be with him forever. That's not the nature of love. You know, suddenly it begins to make more sense to unbelievers. And so you're not compromising truth. You're simply expounding and explaining truth uh, accurately. And so that's one of the best things Christians can do is get a really good grasp and understanding of heaven and hell and of the character of God. That's why, you know, as you and I constantly... Uh, emphasize here on this show, Kevin, that Christians diligently need to study the Word because the more we understand the Word, the more effectively we can communicate its truth to the culture that is out there. Pat, you have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism on your website. Resources on so many topics, including the topic of hell, universalism, past shows, and, and so on. What are some more things that uh, we can look for at evidenceandanswers.org these days? Well, you know, we just finished a great series on prophecy, what's going on in the Middle East, current Middle East uprisings, and its connection to biblical prophecy. And Pat, if there's anyone who wants to become more involved with Evidence and Answers, there's a place right there on the website, evidenceandanswers.org, where you can make a financial gift. We are dependent upon God's people to support our work here, not only in the United States, but throughout the world, proclaiming the gospel by presenting the compelling evidence for Christ, defending the gospel, and equipping Christians to effectively communicate and engage the ideas of their culture for Jesus Christ. And so we need the body of Christ to support our work that goes throughout the world. And we can go to evidenceandanswers.org, just look for the donate button there, and We'd really appreciate you become a financial donor and a financial partner in supporting our work throughout the world. Evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you, Pat. I'm Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.